anxiety can make you do strange things. I have a guy who went on a date with a girl he really liked. He was quite anxious about the experience. He wanted desperately to impress uh, and especially to laugh at her jokes. He thought that would be an important thing to do to let her know that he thought, as far as he was concerned, she had a terrific sense of humour. Anyway, so he's drinking uh, Coke. He was a, a serious and sober sort of guy. He's drinking Coke. She said something that he thought would be good to let her know was seriously hilarious and he laughed with his mouth full which uh, is, is a really bad idea he kind of did the sort of laughter and sprayed her entire face with coke what's worse is that she was wearing glasses and so the coke's kind of just dripping down the glasses but he couldn't believe what he'd done and so he gave a look to her which said perfectly clearly in an unmistakable kind of language don't even acknowledge what's just happened (laughs) so the meal goes on and eventually of course the coke evaporates to form just those kind of dry rivulets of sugar down her glasses they never went on a second date fear, anxiety can make you do some strange things it can also make you do some destructive things Uh, It actually can be terribly erosive in your Christian life because it disrupts faith. A middle-aged man feels called to switch careers and to do something really bold for God. But fear holds him back. A long-term Christian has a hard time loving God because she's afraid that he will do bad things to her. And when life goes well for a while, she starts getting nervous that there's something just around the corner. A student feels pressured by her parents to follow a course for her life that she does not want, but fear prevents her from speaking up. A young man finds himself engaged to a woman with whom he realises he is not in love. But everyone's expecting the marriage to take place, and so out of fear and social anxiety, he suppresses his doubts and presses on grimly. Fear and anxiety can really do terrible things to you, and as we come to this last in Our last series in our book of the year, Isaiah, I hope that you have some recollection of where we began months and months ago, Isaiah chapter 1. We find Israel in a time of high anxiety and fear. We're going to be looking at the third section of the prophecy of Isaiah. You may know that Isaiah comes in three sections. There's 1 to 39, 40 to 55 and 56 to 66, three quite distinct sections. Uh, This is set uh, pre-the exile in the 8th century BC. This is set during the exile with the promise of return. And this one is set post-pre-during and post-the exile at the end of the 6th century BC. Some say, therefore, it was not written by Isaiah. It can't have been written by Isaiah. This is the 8th century. This is the 6th century. Unless he lived to a very, 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 very ripe old age, uh, it wasn't him. However, I don't see that there's any reason particularly to think that this can't be a prophetic vision of the return from exile that Isaiah is given by the Lord. Uh, certainly, where he ends, the second section, chapter 55, is full of hope. You shall go out in joy. Where they're going out of, of course, is Babylon and be led back in peace. Where they're being led back to is Jerusalem. Uh, This is not just some kind of interesting travel directions. 
Uh, this is a cosmic reality. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And it's a great image, isn't it? They're so joyful is the reality that God has fulfilled his purposes amongst his people. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, for an everlasting sign that shall, shall not be cut off. These were great days promised. And yet as we enter the post-exilic time, it's hardly accurate of the state of Israel. It is profoundly underwhelming. And so Israel is in the position of waiting, and it's waiting, of course, that produces anxiety and fear. Chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Of course, this is us, isn't it? We also are waiting people. We're the right side of the cross and resurrection and yet we're this side of glory. We're the right side of the first instalment but we're this side of full completion. And so I think we're equally susceptible to anxious and fearful waiting. What does God say to his waiting people? Chapter 56, verse 2. Happy, uh, to be weak, blessed. Blessed, uh, to be um, envied is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it and refrains from doing any evil. As you wait for the salvation of the Lord, what Isaiah has to say to the people of Israel is that you are blessed, you are happy if you keep the Sabbath. And as we'll see, this is a theme that runs fairly heavily right throughout this whole section, uh, which we're looking at today, chapter 56, verse 1, through chapter 59, verse 13. Why is the Sabbath so important? Of all the things you might say, you're blessed if you do, why blessed if you keep the Sabbath? Well, if you go back and look at the Ten Commandments, you find that along with the command to obey your parents, uh, it is the only one with that one that is positive rather than negative. It's a you shall rather than a you shall not. And what is it that uh, you shall? Well, you should observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy is what the commandment says. In other words, you work for six days labouring and doing all your work. That may come as a bit of a shock to you art students. Six days you work, not the other way around. But on the seventh, on the seventh, namely Saturday, you're to cease from work to rest. That was the commandment. Notice, uh, interestingly, it's not so much about worship as about work stoppage. Uh, Although later on in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3, the connection to worship in the assembly is made with the Sabbath, Mainly, what the Sabbath command is all about is taking fully 24 hours, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, to not work, to simply down tools and do nothing. Now, when God gave Israel their Sabbath laws, it included far more than simply the weekly Sabbath. There was, uh, it was the foundation, but there was also the monthly Sabbath. It was called a new moon celebration. Uh, there were seasonal Sabbaths uh, during the course of the year, festivals. Uh, such as the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. Uh, These festivals lasted each seven whole days themselves, an entire week treated as a Sabbath celebration. Every seventh year the land was supposed to rest and no farming was to be allowed. Uh, People who owed debts were forgiven their loans 
which if you're feeling a little anxious about your hex debt, you could try with the government. And Israel's Sabbath law finally included the year of Jubilee, which came every 50th year, where not only would the land enjoy rest, but all slaves would be released and land would be returned to its ancestral home. You know, this Sabbath is not just sort of a weekly day off, it's, it's a whole kind of pattern of life, which indicated with stunning regularity and power that life does not consist in productivity, you see. The Sabbath celebrates life beyond and outside effectiveness and outputs. Of course, just prior to the giving of the Sabbath commandment, Israel had been in Egypt ruthlessly pressured into production for the sake of the empire, making their quota of bricks without straw endlessly and harshly. But here's the point, right? In the promised land and now in the time of waiting, Life is rightly lived, not at maximum productivity. And this is a great act of faith, isn't it, in God? It's a daring act of refusal to be defined by production, or for that matter, to be defined by consumption. Israel is to be different, publicly and obviously different, and that will cost her and it will be a risk. And that takes trust in your waiting. And so it's a great test of faith. Notice that this blessing of invitation is made available to all. Previous barriers to membership and the blessing of Israel, the foreigner and the eunuch are now welcome. Verse 3, do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Of course, there was no name or future for eunuchs. God's purpose in this is verse 7, that he'll bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And of course you hear Jesus' own appropriation of that intention, don't you? This is the vision of the waiting people in the house of God, a trusting, Sabbath-keeping, non-anxious people, welcoming all into God's house of prayer. The reality However, as Isaiah sees it, is far different. You remember a parable that Jesus spoke of a field that was sown with good seed, but during the night an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. The labourers asked whether they should try to get rid of the weeds, and Jesus says, no, don't do that, because then the wheat will also be uprooted. Leave it till harvest time. In the meantime, there's wheat and there's weeds, and then at harvest time, collect them both, gather the grain, and burn the weeds. You can check it out in Matthew chapter 13 if you like. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven before the climax is this side of glory, a mixed affair. And as I speak to the same reality, on the one hand, there is the house of the righteous who even though they perish, obtain peace. Chapter 57 and verse 1. The righteous perish No one takes it to heart, the devout are taken away while no one understands. 
For the righteous are taken away from calamity, they enter into peace. And those who walk uprightly will rest on their couches. This is where God builds his house, he says later on, with those who are humble and trust in him. Verse 57, sorry, chapter 57, verse 13, at the end there. But whoever takes refuge in me shall possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. It should be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place, and also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and revive the heart of the contrite. That's one house where God dwells. But there's another house. This is not the house of the Lord. This is, the, uh, the, this is not the house of those who are faithful and true. This house is the house of the prostitute and of her brood. You see it in verse 3. But as for you, come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of an adulterer and a whore. Whom are you mocking against? Whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You that burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree. You that slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of rocks. And their mother is introduced. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your, and it's a second person singular at this point, is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I be appeased for these things upon a high and lofty mountain? You have set your bed and there you went up to offer sacrifice behind the door and the doorpost. You have set up your symbol for in deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You have made a bargain for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have gazed at their nakedness. You journeyed to Moloch with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far away and sent down even to Sheol. You grew weary from your many wanderings but you did not say it is useless. You found your desire rekindled and so you did not weaken. The vision is of a holy people trusting in the Lord. The reality is of a terrible indictment of God's unfaithful people. We to unpack this in three steps. Firstly, notice that the issue here is the issue of fear and security. You see there in verse 9, they send their envoys to Molech. Actually, that's a play on words. Molech is both the name of a particular god, but Melech is also Hebrew for king. And, and sending envoys is what you do to a king, you see. In other words, what this indictment consists of, the concrete reality to which the indictment corresponds, is the making of treaties with foreign nations seeking to employ the military clout of the great nations by her side. Israel is fearful. And so she acts. But because religion always goes with politics, there was also a cultic ritual activity indulging in the religions of those nations, and especially what we see depicted here is ritual sex. Uh, Ritual sexual activity was designed to force in heaven what was being enacted on earth. The the physical and earthly expression of fertility and growth was designed to cause God to create fertility and growth within the nation. But then thirdly, that leads uh, to the final aspect. This constitutes adultery, doesn't it? 
This is an act of whoredom, of prostitution. Both literally in the sense that there were people having sex with people they weren't married to, but more importantly even, this is adultery spiritually. That is a kind of gross unfaithfulness to God, toying with other commitments alongside of God, which is as serious and as involving as sharing your bed with someone you're not married to. For those who go down this path, precisely because they go down this path, they miss out on what they desperately seek. They want security. They want stability. But verse 19, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea that cannot keep still. Its waters toss up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. They do it because of anxiety. They want security. They want to possess the land, to inherit God's holy mountain, to shore up their lives, to enjoy the good things, but in striving to save their life, you see, they lose it. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, put it this way. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange, Lewis asks? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters, even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. My friend at the start with a coat and found that out. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring tuppence how often it's been told before, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Now we need to pause here and ask ourselves, I think, uh, where is our security? What are our hopes? And, And how are you going about getting them? More pointedly, where are you seeking from the world and the idolatries of our world what only God can legitimately offer for the sake of reducing your anxiety? Where are you embracing the gods of this age? For example, how seriously have you thought about your money? What assumptions have you made about how much you will earn and what you will do with it and where you will live and in what kind of house and how much you will give away? How deeply are these assumptions affected by the utter idolatry of our Western materialistic culture? So that as a Christian, you turn out to be practically indistinguishable from every other mass-produced Australian. And not just how have you thought about these things, but what are you doing about them now? Because the habits that you develop now, the percentage of your income at the very basic level that you give away now, you will never exceed. That's what you will do for the rest of your life. The habits that you get into now. You say, oh, I don't have very much now. Rubbish. You have plenty. How seriously have you thought about what job you will do? And how much is that about the security 
that a prestigious, well-respected, high-paying profession can deliver you with access to opportunities and possibilities and especially being noticed by people. I've been reading a book uh, a little while ago uh, called Status Anxiety by Alain de Botton or Botton, if you're sort of feeling French. Uh, he quotes William James in The Principle of Psychology, a book uh, from 1890, who writes this, No more fiendish punishment could be devised, were such a thing physically possible, than that one should be turned loose in society and remain absolutely unnoticed by all the members thereof. If no one turned around when we entered, answered when we spoke, or minded what we did, but if every person we met cut us dead and acted as if we were non-existent things, a kind of rage and impotent despair would before long well up in us, from which the cruelest bodily torture would be a relief. Who do you want to be noticed by? And what are you doing to secure that notice? And how much of your life is oriented around that hope? How much of the way that you spend your time is really just about amusing yourself? Just like our culture is amusing itself to death. There are real idolatries all around us. Not so obvious as ancient ritual orgies, perhaps, although it's not far from that at times if you belong to certain football clubs. There are real idolatries as pathetic, as debasing and as futile as anything that uh, 6th century Israel could get into. And we are fools if we think that we don't suffer the temptation to allow our fears, our anxieties, our desire to grasp peace and security to drive us into their arms, to prostitute ourselves. I've recently been reading a history of the evangelical movement, uh, our own movement, our own forebears from the 18th century. Um, There are some similarities between us and them, but there are some very, very great differences as well. There is an intensity and spiritual fervour and passion, a sacrifice and a willingness to abandon oneself to the service of God that you see in those 18th century evangelicals, which to be honest I see rarely amongst us 20th century Western evangelicals. And I wonder just how well they would recognise us. We looking back perhaps can see some similar, but how would they go about recognising us? Or would they see us in pretty much the same terms as the church of their own day to which they sought to bring revival? Where have we prostituted ourselves and bought into the idolatries of this age to soothe our anxious hearts? because we don't trust the Lord. The Lord dwells with those who take refuge in him. The Lord dwells with those who are contrite and humble in spirit. Actually it gets worse. There's an even worse form of sin than spiritual adultery, if you can believe it. It's spiritual abuse. Listen to it, chapter 58, verse 1. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion to the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. 
They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast? But you do not see. Why humble ourselves? But you do not notice. Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Here is anxiety expressed, I think, as spiritual abuse, even worse than spiritual idolatry. Somehow God is not responding to these pious people. They keep their fasts. They make their prayers. And he's not responding to them because they've applied to him the principles of their idolatrous worship. The principle behind ancient religion was, of course, to put the gods under pressure to perform their tasks, to manipulate them, to pull the right levers to achieve the right purpose. And that's what's expressed here. They're doing the motions, but there is no heart. And Isaiah can tell that because of the outcome in the people's lives. They keep the fast at the Sabbath as urged in chapter 56. <coughs> Pardon me. But in doing so they quarrel and fight among themselves. They oppress their workers. And so the Lord's conclusion in verse 5 is, Is such the path that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it about down the head like a bulrush to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? can't manipulate God by your ritual. Biblical religion is always a religion of trust. It's always deep, felt, heart, trust of God. Not one that tries to coerce or manipulate by our religious performance. One which is content to let God be God. To let God determine the direction and the pathway of your life and to trust him. Last night my father had brain surgery in Hungary. Uh, he told me last week that they had been discovered and diagnosed with a, a benign and easily accessible brain tumour, so the news was not all bad. But nonetheless, he's 80 years old and general anaesthetic and surgery on an 80-year-old is not the easiest and most straightforward thing. I suggest that he come to Australia for it. He was offended by that because their technology in Hungary is every bit as good as ours. Uh, I've been much at prayer this last week for my dad. I mean, I pray for him regularly anyway, but... Uh, if there were levers that I could pull, if there was a way to coerce and manipulate God, then I think I'd be tempted to do it. But you can't coerce God. Uh, my piety, my prayers, my performance, my spirituality, my rituals, my church going, my Bible reading, my prayer, none of this is something I can use to say to God, look, I did this for you. Now you do this for me. That's just rank superstition. That's not biblical religion. That's not being children of the living God. The test of this for Isaiah is, of course, how you treat others. Listen to what he says, verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. And so the prophet in verse 13, if you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honourable, if you honour it not going your own way, serving your own interests or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I'll feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Deeply embedded in biblical faith is the notion that there is no genuine relationship with God which is not also and at the same time a genuine relationship with those who are around you and especially with the household of faith. But that the most important commandment, the thing which if you succeed in everything else in life and then fail at this point then your life is a failure, the greatest commandment is dual, twofold. To love the Lord your God and therefore know and be able to love your neighbour as yourself. And you can tell the one from the other. Again, let's pause for a moment. We have our religious rituals, don't we? Not, I guess, in the same way as Israel did, not even in the same way as the Muslims do, but there are still rituals that are embedded in our culture going to church regularly it could be more regular I say as a pastor for those who have ears to hear the quiet time the daily reading of scripture and prayer they're all good things and we need to do them more and more just like keeping the Sabbath is a good thing but you can do it abusively or you can do it spiritually You do it abusively when you think that the doing of these things is what is going to make your life better because God will necessarily deliver for you in the hopes that you have, in the dreams that you have formed. That somehow God will be more inclined to you when you do these things in and of themselves. How often when you manage successfully to pray or read the Bible at the beginning of the day instead of sort of last thing at night, Do you fall into the trap of thinking, well, your day is going to go better, isn't it? That God's somehow just a little bit more pleased with you and that therefore things will go more smoothly. And at the same time as we need to do them with a real heart, these things don't substitute for a love for people that's real and costly. You may know the man who is regular as clockwork to church, who gives a tenth of all that he has, who's not like other people, thieves and rogues and adulterers or even the riffraff who accompanied him in the church. You know that man? Who because he exalts himself will be humbled. He's dead in his heart towards others and he's dead in his heart towards God. And so he goes down to his home not justified. Profoundly impressively religious 
far more so than you or me put together I suspect chapter 59 begins to suggest a remedy for this divided people the two houses the house with whom God dwells those who are humble and contrite and the prostitute's house and her children adulterous and abusive well chapter 59 begins to suggest a remedy for this divided people it's not that God is unable to respond to this spiritual manipulation it's that he doesn't choose verse 1 see the Lord's hand is not too short to save nor his ear too dull to hear rather your iniquities have been barriers between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear and so their only hope their only hope is a movement of the heart a movement into real and deep confession of sin a movement which gives up on its desperate grabbing at the bread of anxious toil and which entrusts itself to God verse 9 therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us we wait for light and lo there is darkness for brightness but we walk in gloom we grope like the blind along a wall groping like those who have no eyes we stumble at noon as in the twilight among the vigorous as though we were dead we all growl like bears like doves we moan mournfully we wait for justice but there is none for salvation but it is far from us for our transgressions before you are many and our sins testify against us our transgressions indeed are with us and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from following our God talking oppression and revolt conceiving lying words and uttering them from the heart how God responds to this prayer of deep desperation we will see next week I think these are frightening chapters actually in Isaiah's prophecy they expose the possibility the very real possibility of spiritual shipwreck if we let our fears drive us if we don't understand and acknowledge our anxieties and entrust them to God but instead seek to resolve them ourselves a lack of deep held security in God can drive you to terrible places to idolatry where you taste and then feast on the currently available solutions in our society for our, uh, to our need for security and even spiritual abuse where we try to force rather than to trust God we need to hear this warning about the dangers of fear in our lives I read recently of a father who took his son parasailing uh, parasailing is where you're suspended as you may know on a parachute behind a speedboat uh, the guy driving the boat said that you could ascend to uh, 150 metres or if you let out more rope you'd go up to 200 metres or 250 metres so he asked how high do you want to fly the father naturally anxious about his kid wants to steer him towards the kind of lower end of that scale the son says that frankly all of the options seem fairly scary and uh, when you think about it have some fairly dire consequences if the boat fails anyway the father wants his son to be free 
from the grip of fear and so they talk about it after a few minutes the kid thinks for a while and then decides I'm going to go for the 250 metres I might be scared when I get up there at first but I'm going to do it because the ride only lasts a few minutes but once it's over I'll have it forever the ride only lasts for a few minutes but once it's over I'll have it forever that's what God is saying to us and to our fears through his prophet this afternoon is pretty much that the ride only lasts for a few minutes all flesh is like grass all its glory is like a flower of grass the grass withers and the flower falls that's it in the vast eternal scheme of things which is laid up for us in heaven our life is briefer than we can possibly imagine don't live it in fear don't live it in fear for you see whatever you do in faith whenever you act in trusting and risky obedience that you will have forever let's pray our Lord Jesus Christ we praise you that you have with great power brought us to your cross and raised us with you and we pray that as your people now we would live our lives in faith in deep trust and though the earth should shake tremble mountains around us crumbling though there are many things for which we are, about which we are uncertain and for which we hope that you would grant us to lay our fears at your feet that we can follow in your footsteps all the days of our lives and we ask it for your glory Amen